where rather than matter of fact, we have what's going to get clicks, what's going to be polarizing, and what's going to feed the algorithm. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Awesoming's podcast, where we highlight people pursuing their definition of, you guessed it, awesome. So buckle up and get ready for some more success story adventures and failures from Kentucky's tech and entrepreneur community. Hey guys, thanks for checking out this episode of Awesomings Podcast. I have not just a privilege, I am, I'm pretty stinking blessed to be sitting down with a new friend, Blake Rickenbach, and let me tell you what, his style is off the chain. <laughs> it really is. And yeah, cool background with, with how our community is working across Kentucky. I had a coworker who was on a Zoom call, Blake was on said Zoom call, talking about his wisdom, spitting his knowledge, and she thought, hey, Garrett, you should meet this guy. So she set us up, and then a week later, we are connecting, recording a podcast, and I'm excited for Blake to shed some light on a lot of haziness. It's a little foreshadow. Uh, yeah, haziness with, with the tech world and give some of his background and help our entrepreneurial community. So with that, Blake, let's dive on in. How are you doing today? I'm doing so well. I'm really glad that my uh, jackfruit print shirt has gotten some attention. It's got like jackfruit, dragon fruit. Uh, glad that that was a nice, nice way to break the seal and get things started. Absolutely. Have you ever had a jackfruit before? I don't think so. I don't think so. I've like walked past them at Kroger and kind of shoved them a little bit, okay. but uh, never actually got around to buying one or eating one. And then you realize your hand was bleeding from touching the, uh, exactly. the spikes or whatever's <laughs> the, you know, the, the outer shell of that fruit. No, that's sweet. I definitely have had something dragon fruit flavored. That sounds like a, a fake flavoring syrup from Starbucks or somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess I've definitely had dragon fruit. <laughs> I lived in LA for a short period of time. And so like, Dragon fruit acai bowls with chia seeds yes. was kind of, you know, go to Saturday breakfast. No, I totally get that. I was actually watching a, a TV show called Letterkenny. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before. It's it's probably the weirdest show I've seen. It's a very set humor. Or yeah, a very specific humor for an audit for its audience. Um, but it's based in rural Canada, you know, with air quotes. And they were doing this gag on LA. It's like everyone moves to LA and they say it as LA. Anyways, when you said that, that the Eliasa Ebo, I was like, wow, that is spot on with what I was watching. Oh, for sure. I think it's particularly <laughs> true of people who go to LA and then leave LA. And yeah, and come I think back if wherever. you stay And that LA. was the joke. That was the joke. It's they're in this rural part of Canada, go to LA, and instead of saying LA, it was LA. LA. And then move back. Yep. Um, and if you're listening to this and you're somebody in LA, no judgment, we love you. Just something funny the media portrayed that made me laugh. Oh, great city. Love so much that you can do in L.A. Uh, not a great fit for me personally, but I think a lot of people in L.A. don't take themselves too seriously because L.A. has just that L.A. reputation. So I, I don't think they'd be offended if you are. I'm sorry. But it's really important to not take yourself so seriously. For and sure. That's something I'm still learning and I'm I'm pretty young, which is a good reminder. So, <laughs> Blake, with that, tell us a little bit about your background. And I know we have a couple questions that are going to lead to where we want this conversation to go. But yeah, what what is your background maybe from, from school, maybe first couple jobs, and really setting a foundation for your experience where we'll end up talking about entrepreneurship? Yeah, for sure. So I graduated from Bellarmine University. Go Knights! Uh, yeah, go Knights! Woo! Uh, with the highly coveted BA in English. And 
my initial plans were actually just to go back into higher ed. I was planning on getting my MA, my PhD, teaching literature. Uh, but I, I didn't want to do that immediately. I wanted to take some time off. And so I, I got a job at a local university, which will remain nameless because I didn't have a very great experience there. Don't want to badmouth anybody. And spent a year working in that environment and realizing that I really did not like the politics of higher education and the complexities of that particular field. So I uh, ended up resigning and taking some time to do freelance writing and content marketing full time. Uh, I say full time. It was not exactly a 40 hour a week workload. Turns out being a strong writer and uh, being able to start your own business are very different skills. But while I was freelancing, I wanted to find a way to expand my marketing knowledge and my digital uh, digital marketing knowledge. And I eventually came across the HubSpot Academy, which is a free training and certification uh, program that HubSpot offers in a variety of fields related to digital marketing. And I ended up getting certified in a couple of areas and thinking, you know, this is a really cool company. If I wasn't a freelancer, I would love to be able to afford to actually use their software. And, you know, once I got completely fed up with the inconsistent paychecks of freelancing and wanted to go back into full-time work, I saw that HubSpot was hiring in their customer service department. Uh, and it was the first time they were offering a fully remote customer service role. And I thought, you know, that, that company was pretty cool when I took their academy courses. I'm just going to apply and, you know, I know nothing about tech, but the worst they can do is say no. And I ended up getting hired on as one of the two uh, first fully remote customer service representatives and was assigned to work West Coast Business Hours. Their office is in Cambridge, which is right outside of Boston. And they also have another support team in Singapore. And so there was kind of a, a bit of a gap where they needed more people working West Coast Business Hours to support those customers. Yeah, started started working out in Los Angeles for HubSpot. And that was where I uh, had some opportunities to teach myself some basic front-end web development. So doing like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, uh, Hubble, which is our proprietary coding language based on Java, And from there, ended up using those front-end web skills to move into the role that I currently have now, which is product expert, uh, which essentially means I am a translator between engineers and recent college grads, where if you're ever, if you're a HubSpot customer and you've ever worked with HubSpot support and they've said something along the lines of, I'm not sure about this, let me consult our internal team, or this might be a bug, let me consult our internal team. What that means is they wrote up an issue that came to me and then I looked at it and either told them how to fix it or said, oh yeah, this is a bug, let me send this to an engineer. Uh, so that's that's the role that I'm in now, but I specifically work as the product expert for our search optimization and CMS publishing teams. So basically within this hierarchy of HubSpot's various products and the platforms and services that we offer, it's broken down into product teams, which are clusters of engineers, designers, and product managers that oversee particular sets of functionality. And I am on our SEO tools and basically anything inside the CMS that has a publish button on it. That's that's my territory. That's what I do day in and day out. I know I'm sitting across from you just smiling down my head quite a bit. There's so much that, and again, I, I can go from the very beginning. 
talking about Bellarmine, you move on. Uh, I was actually a governor scholar, went to Bellarmine or at Bellarmine back in 2013. So it's interesting. You bring up, you had a good interaction or a good experience with HubSpot. Thus you said, yeah, why not? I'll go, I'll go and apply for this company. Worst I can say is no. That was with me with, with a GSP program. There are a lot of acronyms that you threw out that we'll just say most people might not know. So you said SEO, CMS, Hubble, which is your guys' proprietary software language, to say the least. Mm-hmm. What are some of those acronyms and maybe what is a simpler version of how each of those play into what you do? Yeah, so I'll start with probably the easiest to define, which is Hubble, sometimes pronounced Hub-L. Uh, not really an acronym, just the first part of the word HubSpot followed by the letter L. Frankly, I don't know why it's followed by an <laughs> L. It just uh, it just flows. It just is. I wasn't. I'm not an engineer. I didn't make that coding language, but it's a uh, our front end development language that we use in app that allows users to create uh, modules and editable fields inside their page templates. Uh, it allows you to implement logic on your pages so you could say if this do that yes uh it allows you to define loops which are always fun in software which basically says for whatever meets this specific criteria do this uh so that's hubble yeah the main thing with coding is you have to be very very literal so that's good that you're walking us through some of the necessary understanding for hubble so yeah quick uh quick explanation of maybe seo and cms and what someone may for the first time be hearing some of these things, what they actually mean before sure. we move on. So a CMS is just a content management system. It's any platform that you use to create and publish content online. So WordPress, HubSpot, uh, Woomla, Wix, those are all CMSs. They allow you to design, lay out content, and then you hit a publish button and it sends it into the series of tubes we call the internet. SEO is what happens when a bunch of people say it depends when you ask them how to get your website found on Google. It stands for search engine optimization, and it is a science, a discipline, a process, an art form, a guess and check of creating content in a way that makes it easy for search engines like Google and Bing and DuckDuckGo to understand the purpose of the content and how it's going to solve for a specific user at a specific time. Very, very cool. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I know that's where we're gonna cater probably the rest of this conversation towards. So it's good to lay some of that foundation down. And Blake, there's something we refer to as boomerang here in our community. Someone who maybe is from Kentucky or somewhere close by, they move maybe to somewhere uh, sexy in air quotes. So to LA or to maybe the East Coast, somewhere else, and then find their way back. And I know that's part of your story, but what brought you back? What was the big change that said, nah, this, this place isn't for me? Wow. Uh, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the, maybe like the, the elevator pitch version. Yeah. So the abridged version was the living situation I was in ended up being not great and also very expensive. And it just got to the point with finances and stress where I realized it was easier to live in the Eastern Standard Time Zone, working West Coast Time Zone, than it was to uh, put up with all of the extra baggage that came from my situation in sure, LA. Sure. So I, uh, yeah, I, I really wanted to uh, save some money, have more just flexibility and free time in my day. And so uh, after a 
shorter tenure in Los Angeles than expected, ended up putting an entire one-bedroom apartment inside of my 2005 Camry. Not to be too sexy with the car talk, but I do drive a Toyota Camry. Uh, shoved an entire one-bedroom apartment into my back seat and my trunk and drove back across the country, came back to Kentucky, and here I am. Man, I, I've been in your shoes before, but in the opposite in the opposite way. So my brother worked at Google one summer, and my dad, my brother, and me drove from Louisville to... San Francisco, Santa Cruz area to be specific, in a Honda Civic and packed up his belongings. So it was it was a tight fit for a week. Oh, for <laughs> sure. <laughs> but it was it was a great trip and saw a lot of a lot of parts of the states I've never seen before, which was beautiful. Now we're gonna talk about your role with HubSpot and move into some more of this tech ethics haziness, what the heck is going on understanding. So you talked a bit about what you do at HubSpot. What specifically do you do to interact with entrepreneurs and people you're helping develop startups? Yeah, so really most of my engagements with the startup and entrepreneurial community happens outside of HubSpot. Because of the opportunities I had at HubSpot, I really fell in love with front-end web development, content strategy, and a bit of technical SEO. And being, I'm one of those people where when I start to get like an obsession with something, I just dive in completely. I love it. And so uh, I, I often say that by day I'm a HubSpotter, but then by evenings and the occasional early morning, I'm an entrepreneur myself. Uh, just a, a sole proprietor, I do some executive coaching and SEO consulting for small businesses and nonprofits. Uh, I really particularly love working with uh, B Corps and four benefit corporations, but really I'm open to any kind of clientele that wants to look for a way to expand their impact without having to go crazy with their budget. Blake, I got to be honest. I lied when I asked that first question. I know that's wrong. I really just wanted to set you up to say, no, I do this outside of my job. That's great. That's really what I cared about. So that's cool to hear that you found something you love and realized, hey, I want to do this for myself. I want to create this opportunity to control my time, control how much money I make. So cool that you set that foundation. That's really ultimately what we want to encourage people who are listening to this that might not be an entrepreneur, it's, hey, just go for it. And in the words of Shia LaBeouf, just do it. <laughs> I still love that gift. That's one of my favorite videos from the past. Well, uh, I appreciate you setting me up to spike that one in over the net. I guess I could go more like top of the funnel and be like, and anyone who wants to learn about it can visit <laughs> www.blakereichenbach. That's B-L-A-K-E. R-E-I-C-H-E-N-B-A-C-H dot com. Yes, that was gold. I, I love that. I'm going to make sure that. It's also linked in our show notes so people can, can look at <laughs> afterwards too. That's great. So now that you, you've talked about your role with HubSpot, what you're doing outside as an entrepreneur, initially when we met, you were talking to the attendees of Lexington and Kentucky overall, their startup breakfast on Wednesday mornings that meets from 8 to 9 a.m. on Zoom. You're more than welcome to come. And you were talking about the need to improve tech ethics because they're hazy. What the heck does that phrase tech ethics even mean? And maybe why it's hazy? Absolutely. So at the time that we're recording this, we are in an election season. Yes, yes we are. I think that is probably the clearest example of the complexities of tech ethics and the need to have conversations around what ethics look like within the technical space. Sure. And uh, the topic actually came up at Startup Breakfast in terms of the idea of 
content moderation and censorship and the role of some of these tech giants such as you know Facebook, Google, Amazon in spreading disinformation but also uh, a sense of disharmony almost and it, it really becomes a very very hazy topic when you start to break it down because it seems like especially if we hone in on social media, it's become such an integral part of our society that we haven't really conceptualized what our society looks like moving forward without it. But with it, we don't really know what it looks like to use social media well. And if you've been on Facebook within the last, like, I say it's really probably been in an uptick since 2012, but If you've been on Facebook recently, you probably know that it tends to be a playground for polarization. Even the way that marketers think about creating content has changed because of the polarizing effect of social media. So if you think about, I'll I'll use, it's perhaps scary to do so, but I'll use politics as an example. Sure. Uh, If you think about the way that headlines are framed regarding politicians, We've seen it shift from something that's more like journalistic, AP style, into whatever's going to get clicks. So you could have a politician who uh, orders German food and mispronounces it. And rather than saying like, Biden accidentally ordered schnitzel instead of schnitzel, uh, you have a headline that's like, Biden declares war on German culture. You know, that's totally hyperbole, but that's kind of the nature where we've gone. Yeah. Where rather than matter of fact, we have what's going to get clicks, what's going to be polarizing, and what's going to feed the algorithm. And it's really where we start looking at the way algorithms surface content and then the way that that content gets reviewed where things get super, super messy or hazy to use that word from your foreshadowing earlier. There we earlier. go. Yeah, no, that's good. Man, so off off the cuff, have you seen the Social Dilemma Netflix documentary? And what are your thoughts with that? So I have not watched the documentary yet. It's perpetually on my to-watch list, but also, again, with this being an election season, my to-watch list keeps getting pushed further and further down so I can re-watch Buffy and pretend that 2020 is not happening. Uh, so I haven't watched it yet, but... Uh, It's been definitely one where working in the tech sphere, it's come up in a lot of conversations. And I know that companies like Mozilla and Amazon and Microsoft have kind of put out some statements around it and their responses to it and some of the topics that, you know, they think should go further in conversation or that might be more important than some of the elements surfaced in that documentary. With that, how does SEO and your knowledge play into the algorithms, to the the haziness of these tech ethics? Because again, a lot of people don't understand what you just shared from the political example. It's very true. Yeah. So first, I just want to say really quickly, the the Biden schnitzel example was just something random that popped in my mind. I do not want to spread misinformation ahead of an election. But in terms of SEO and ethics, I think that we really have to take a step back and recognize that most casual users of the internet don't understand how the internet works. You know, a really clear example of that is a few months back on Facebook, 
there was this viral post going around of people saying, you know, go to your Facebook settings, look at your privacy settings. It There's a setting that says they can track your behavior offline. And, you know, people were freaking out about this and sharing this post and saying, oh my gosh, it's true. There's a setting. They can see what you're doing when you're not on Facebook. And as someone who works in tech, I just kind of had to step back and go, yeah, they, they always have been. Any website you go to, there's like a 99% chance they're able to track the behavior that you've engaged in off of that website. It's, it's called a tracking cookie. When you go to a website and just click accept on that pop-up that comes up without reading it, that means you're consenting to have that behavior tracked and that data tracked. And so what people end up doing when they don't understand how algorithms and the internet more broadly works is they end up creating feedback loops that are not necessarily productive. And the way that they use the internet and the behaviors that they engage in can end up actually creating that sense of polarization that they report, but it can also train search engines and other algorithmically based platforms to misconstrue user intent. So, with some some context, if you look at any search engine like Google, the underlying goal of using a search engine is to look at the query you put in, so what you're typing into the search bar, and say, okay, from this huge library of content that we have indexed, what content is best going to match their query? What's going to answer the question that they are searching? And Within SEO, because a lot of SEOs are paid and evaluated based upon how well they're able to drive traffic to a given website, a lot of times what what I will call less ethical SEOs will do is look for ways to game that algorithm and drive traffic to a website, even if it's not the best traffic for that website. You know, when I'm working with a client, I always explain that, like, if it's not clear to you how an SEO endeavor is going to benefit your audience, don't pay for it. Don't waste the time because that should be the clear focus for those in the SEO world who are just focused on getting those impressions and getting those clicks. That really doesn't matter. doesn't matter if they're the right audience. It just means getting them there. And so from that, we've had an entire field of SEO called Black Hat SEO, which is kind of built around gaming the system. You've had really what I consider like the dark ages of the internet where you know people were creating these content farms to just stuff keywords into a page and publish it and put in links. And people would pay thousands of dollars for this because it would get them higher up in the search results. And all along the way, Google tries to calibrate its algorithm to eliminate some of this gaming of the system and focus on uh, delivering quality content to specific users based upon their search and known information about that user. But it's definitely not a perfect process. And a really recent example of that that's come up, which is absolutely terrible and anti-Semitic, was... um, There was a user who posted on Twitter about how if he went to Google Images and searched for Jewish baby strollers, 
the image that came up first and actually like the, almost the entire first page of image results was a grill. And it was, you know, clearly a, a really horrible Holocaust joke, which, you know, is as far as as topics that probably shouldn't be joked about. I think That's it's one of them. It's fair to say that, you know, genocide is is probably something that shouldn't be taken that lightly. But because of the content that existed on the Internet and had been indexed and the way that Google understood the jokes around that content, that's the type of content that it returned. And that's where we then get into this really interesting conversation around censorship and moderation. Because when this surfaced, it really got a lot of traffic and visibility on Twitter, which is I would say probably one of the main platforms for people in the SEO field to collaborate and communicate. And a lot of people were calling directly on Google's uh, webmaster team and really just like the entire Google corporation to action that and remove that from search results to which Google replied, you know, yeah, we're sorry, this is bad, but we don't have a policy for removing that. So we're not going to do anything right now. And so there's this really, really hazy, tricky area of saying, okay, how do we make sure that these algorithmically based platforms that have a huge impact on society aren't, you know, returning garbage or misinformation or inciting violence while also not skewing the results in favor of one side or another? And, you know, I, I mentioned the polarization that's seen on Facebook. A lot of times, if you are um, a conservative person, you know, I, I heard one friend explaining that he had a friend who was politically conservative and was really upset because he felt like Facebook only ever showed conservative stories in the newsfeed if they were like extreme and hyperbolic and, you know, made conservatives look absurd. Then on the other hand, you know, some of my friends who are farther left on the political spectrum end up saying, well, Facebook can't be inherently liberal because Zuckerberg's made it clear that he doesn't support election, uh, you know, monitoring or censoring election fraud and, you know, is willing to take a paycheck if even if it incurs, you know, political misinformation. So, yeah, it's, it's really hard to identify how we can moderate content in a way that makes it productive without granting one entity more power or influence or sway than another. And that's really where the haziness and the messiness comes into play. It's like, we have to do something, but what do we do? No clue. I think the scary thing is that a lot of people who listen to this, when you when you share what you said, their eyes will open. Because we don't really know, for the most part, how the internet works unless you're a developer, unless you work at a company that specializes in helping people use a software or something. So... Again, I think the the main the main caution even for me is to be mindful of what I'm what I what I look up regardless of where I am, what I was send somebody as a joke. I mean, man, the the baby stroller for you know, the Jewish baby stroller, like that is so sad. Like that exists. But yet people have done that over time, they don't realize what they're doing. So be smart about what you look up on the internet and send to people. It's really important. Blake, you taught us a lot from this episode and I'm re- very, very thankful. My last ask is you dive into a little bit of how you help entrepreneurs and startups. 
What is a blind spot that you've seen in regards to this topic of uh, maybe techn technological illiteracy and a lack of understanding on, on actually how to use the internet well and for a business, how to use it well? Yeah, you know, I think probably the biggest caution that I could give from a business perspective is similar to what I was saying before about how if it doesn't make sense why you're doing something, hold off on doing it. Because I, I feel like there's a trend, and I'll, I'll again use just use the term uh, less ethical SEOs, uh, but there's a trend of people in the digital space to kind of capitalize on the fact that most people don't understand how the internet and algorithms work. And I've seen on several occasions where a business will work with an you know outsourced agency or an individual consultant they'll essentially receive a checklist of tasks to complete and the consultant will be charging an exorbitant amount of money to create that checklist and to uh, claim, I'll put air quotes around claim since this is audio, air quotes, uh, claim will benefit their SEO or to have you know arrived at these conclusions from a content audit. And it's really just kind of a generic set of I won't even say best practices. I'll just say like good practices. And I think that as a business, if you're wanting to not only have an ethical presence online, but a growing and profitable presence online, it's really important to make sure that your digital marketing efforts are catered to your target audience. And that if you are working with a consultant or an agency, you know, don't let them live on easy street. Like don't let them off the hook. If they make a recommendation or an assessment, it's okay to probe and ask questions and make sure that you fully understand the context and the reasoning for doing that. You know, I, I've, I've seen several businesses expend dozens of hours of really technical labor and who knows how many thousands of dollars on things that may result in like a one to 2% traffic increase, maybe won't. Uh, but they just, you know, weren't catered to the business, weren't catered, weren't catered to that audience's needs. Like you have a lot of insight that I have known nothing about. So this is really cool to learn because, hey, we help a lot of startups. And there are times when what you just shared has happened. And we've had people very frustrated and, non, and untrusting or maybe non-trusting, whatever the way to say that is, because they got burned by not maybe knowing what they were getting into or having a game plan. To wrap this up, I'm going to ask my favorite question. Again, I like to be I like to be a student. I want to always be learning, and hopefully people listening to this want to learn as well. So we live in a really cool community. Very thankful for our, our Kentucky ecosystem that people are driven to want to create startups. Kentucky wants to be known for more than bourbon, basketball, horse racing, uh, the stereotype of being barefoot, which I'm wearing shoes, so I don't get that. As an entrepreneur, you have learned probably quite a bit from day one of starting your venture to where you are currently. What is one piece of advice that you would like to give Blake, you know, a year or two ago or whenever you started your venture that would have helped the negative internal dialogue? That is a really good question. It's a load of potato. There's a lot that I wish I uh, could have gone back and told myself. I actually recently uh, self-published a book on my website, um, the book's available. It's called Big Picture Living, A Guide to Finding Fulfillment Even When Everything Sucks. You can find that at shop.selfhimprovement.com. 
going to plug this top of the funnel uh, sales as much as possible. But the, really, that entire book is kind of an aggregate of the lessons that I've I've learned, especially in that really rocky part of my life of transitioning from L.A. to Kentucky. And so I think that if I were to go back a couple of years when I was just getting started in the entrepreneurial space and the tech space, I would really probably challenge myself to prioritize curiosity in a way that I wasn't at the time. You know, I was really focused on mastering the basics of tech and how code works and all of that fun stuff. But I think I could have had such a bigger impact sooner if I would have challenged myself to be a bit more curious about some of the underlying strategy behind web design and behind content marketing and behind content creation, uh, especially as we start to move towards a world of mobile first indexing and core web vitals, which are increasingly prevalent SEO metrics for anyone curious. Uh, I think that had I been more curious about the underlying methodology and philosophy of creating a website, uh, or I guess I should also say the ethics of it to be on brand for this podcast, you know, I think that would have been really informative and helped me accelerate my progress and the impact that I drove for my clients much sooner. Blake, you've done a great job. So thanks for teaching us, giving us some insight on how to be smarter citizens and how to and unfog some of the, uh, the haziness that's around us and our internet use. So thanks for that. Thanks for the tip on be a bit more curious. I think that is helpful to have fun. Also, don't take yourself seriously. And Blake, I'll catch you in LA. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Well, that's it, guys. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Awesomings Podcast. And another quick thank you to Lee Rosevere and a few members from our community who provide the music that you hear in this show. Lastly, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, all that jazz. Or even better, come on down to our space. Come be a part of our community and get plugged in. And let's start something awesome together. You guys rock. We'll see you next time.